Now, we are finishing up our series called King's Cross. We've been in the Gospel of Mark for uh, kind of a long time. And so I want to share with you where we're going to be going next Sunday. Um, we're going to be doing a series called Shining in Babylon. We're going to be focusing on the first six chapters of the book of Daniel. And I know that uh, this coming weekend is the beginning of fall break. And many of you are going... Um, you know, to the beach, you're going to the mountains, and so um, if you need a chaplain to a, go with you to the beach, you know, for, you know, beachside devotions, I am available for that, so just let me know. Uh, but seriously, I don't want you to miss a single week in the series, and even if you're traveling, you're not going to be here over the next couple of weeks, I want you to dial in the live stream, and here's why. Because Jesus says that you are the light of the world. Jesus says you are the salt of the earth. So then the question becomes, how are we to be salt and light in such a dark and hostile world? You guys ever thought about that? You ever thought about, how do I live as a faithful Christian when there's so much unfaithfulness around us every single day? How, how do I live set apart for God when so many people around us are living set apart for themselves? How do you do that? Well, that's what we want to talk about in this series, because, because what we see is Daniel doing the very same thing. You see, what's interesting about the book of Daniel is the setting for the book of Daniel is not Israel. It's actually Babylon. It's actually northern Iraq. And so he is honoring God. He's living faithfully to God in a foreign land, in a pagan land. And there's so many lessons that transfer to us even today. And so God's people in the book of Daniel have been taken captive. They're living in exile. And we as Christians are really living in exile right now because this is not our home. You know, we're first world people living in a second world. We're aliens living in a foreign country, basically. We're ambassadors representing, you know, the kingdom of God, uh, you know, God's government. And so, and so we're going to talk about how do we live that out every single day. Day. And so we're really called to make a difference, and uh, we can only make a difference through the power of the gospel. So that begins, Shining in Babylon begins next Sunday. Everybody get it? Very good. All right. So we want to we wanna see you online, if not here in person. Now, today we are in Mark chapter 16, and I'm going to read verses 9 through 20. And uh, before I do that, I need to kind of set it up this way. Um, probably in all of your Bibles, you're going to see a little note hanging out over verse 9 uh, that says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. How many of you see that in your Bible? All right, yeah, absolutely. So what, what's going on there? What, what, do we, what do we make of that? Well, let me, let me kind of explain what's going on here. Um, we have at our disposal an embarrassment of riches when it comes to manuscripts. So we have thousands and thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament. So anytime a Bible translator has a question about a certain text, they have thousands of manuscripts to look at to kind of verify and validate that what we're reading in the Gospel of Mark is actually what Mark wrote. We have thousands of manuscripts. It's, it's just, you know, embarrassingly amazing uh, how many manuscripts that we have. Now, just for the sake of comparison, uh, next to the New Testament, the greatest amount of manuscript testimony comes from Homer's 
Iliad. So number two on the list of the, of the greatest evidence, the greatest manuscript testimony evidence that we have comes from Homer's Iliad. Do you know how many copies of Homer's Iliad that we have? And do you know that scholars at IU, Bloomington, Butler, wherever, they have no doubt that what we have in Homer's Iliad is actually Homer's Iliad. They have no doubt about it. But do you know how many copies they have of Homer's Iliad in manuscript form? 650. Okay? And most of those are just little fragments. We have thousands of copies of the New Testament to help us verify and validate that what we're reading is actually true. Now, here's why this is important for Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. The, some of the earliest manuscripts that we have do not include verses 9 through 20. And we don't know why. We don't know why. Some of the earliest manuscripts, some of the manuscripts that are closest to the date of Mark actually writing his gospel, which is about 55 AD, they, they don't include this section that we're about to read, and we're just not really sure why. In addition to that, many of the early church fathers who wrote in the 3rd century, in the 4th century, in the 5th century, and they would give commentary on the Gospel of Mark, they don't write anything about verses 9 through 20, which is, which is very, very interesting. Now, there's another example of this kind of thing in the New Testament. If you go to John's Gospel, chapter 7, you don't have to go there right now. But the story of the woman caught in adultery is very similar to this because it's not included in some of the earliest manuscripts. And again, we don't, we don't really know the full story as to why that is. But, but those are the two examples in the New Testament that they have questions about. So, question is, what do we do with what we're about to read? What do we do with Mark 16, 9 through 20? Well, the first thing I would say is this. While it's true that some of the earliest manuscripts don't include it, the reality is many of the manuscripts do include it. And while it's true that many of the early church fathers, 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries, significant early church fathers don't write about verses 9 through 20, many of them do. So what do you do with that? So some Bible scholars, and this is, this is I'm going to let you know what, what I think about it right now. So, um, so some Bible scholars believe that Mark ended his gospel at chapter 8, and it's kind of an abrupt ending, and it's kind of a negative ending because it ends with the disciples being afraid. And that's just kind of the end of the gospel. So their theory is somebody else, not Mark, who had good intentions, wrote something out, maybe even made it up, and then tagged it to smooth the ending out and make it look all nice and, and tidy. Now, here's the thing, church. If you're trying to smooth the ending out of Mark's gospel, you're not going to do that by including, you know, demonic possession, speaking in tongues, drinking poison, and, you know, picking up snakes, which is what we're going to read about, okay? You're not going to smooth it out with that stuff. You're just going to make it even more edgy. Now, I would submit to you that verses 9 through 20 belong in the New Testament, and we're going to look at a reason why. But let me just give you the principle of Bible interpretation that's so important. Anytime that you you come to a passage of scripture that's kind of challenging to understand. And if you're reading your Bible, you're going to experience that. But anytime you come to a passage in the Bible that's kind of hard to understand, you always use other scriptures to help you understand 
the difficult scripture. You always, you know, use scripture to interpret scripture. And so what I find in this is that this passage, what it presents to us, we're going we're gonna to tear it apart in just a minute, is actually very consistent with what we see in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. It's very consistent with what we see in the New Testament. So there's not like there's a new doctrine put forward here or anything. What we really see is something that is kind of edgy a little bit, uh, but we just need to get kind of other scriptural perspective on it. So here's what we're going to do. Without any further ado, I'm going to ask if you're willing and able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word today. Now that I've built the tension in the room, so let's, uh, let's go with it. All right, verse 9. So Mark says this, Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. And after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. And afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. And then verse 19 and 20. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It lasts forever. You may be seated. Yeah, I told you that's an interesting passage, so let's, let's just jump into it. I want you to notice a couple of things right off the bat. First of all, notice that Jesus has been raised from the dead. That's verses 1, you know, one through 8, and, um, and then we see it again in verses 9 through 20. Like I talked about last week, he didn't rise from the sick. Uh, he didn't rise from the badly wounded. He didn't rise from being unconscious. He rose from the dead. Jesus died and rose out of the tomb and so Jesus' resurrection is absolutely a game changer because it splits human history into two. It is the most important event in human history. There's not even anything close to it. But here's the other thing I want you to notice about verses 9 through 20. Did you notice as we read it that there is a recurrence of unbelief in this passage? You have Mary Magdalene who sees the resurrected Jesus. She, run and she runs and tells the disciples and they don't believe her. Then Jesus appears to two men who are walking in the countryside. Probably Luke records that in 
you know, at the end of Luke, this is probably Jesus appearing to these guys on the walk to Emmaus. And so he appears to them, reveals himself to them. Their eyes are open, their hearts are changed, and they head back and they go and tell the disciples he is alive. And Mark tells us the disciples didn't believe him. So Jesus finally shows himself to the disciples as they're eating. He basically says to them, hey guys, it's me. You need to get over your unbelief. And you see this in verse 14. Jesus rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. So you see this recurrence of unbelief right in this text. And so I find it fascinating that the resurrection is the greatest event in the history of the world and there's compelling evidence for the resurrection and yet people still respond with a hard heart and unbelief. And most notably, that's the disciples. And so what we've seen in the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus predicted his death and resurrection, I don't know, five to ten times. And uh, so it wasn't like they hadn't heard it before, but their hearts are just hard and they refuse to believe it. And so here's the thing, church. If you're, if you're just making this up, if somebody's just writing fiction and somehow, some way, they were able to attach this to the ending of the Gospel of Mark, you wouldn't write it that way. It doesn't make the disciples look very good. It's not very flattering to them. What it is, is it's very consistent with what we've seen in the, in the prior 15 chapters. They struggle to believe just like you and I do. They're struggling with unbelief and, and a hardness of heart sometimes like you and I do. So if you're making this up, you're going to paint them in a much better light. But I think what's happening is this is, this is just the facts. This is exactly how it happened. In fact, what I see in this passage is really a contrast between unbelief and belief. That's what's happening here. I think we're seeing a perfect, here's one side of the story, unbelief. Here's the other side, belief. And here are the fruits of it. In fact, uh, you know, you see it in verses 11, 13, and 14, examples of unbelief. And then Jesus comes in and starts challenging, challenging them to believe. And his point is this, belief leads to salvation. Unbelief leads to condemnation. And so Jesus tells him, he says, Guys, I want you to go out and I want you to proclaim the good news. And I want you to proclaim it to all of creation. Now, real quick, what's the good news? Well, the good news is the, is the reality, first of all, that we're sinful and we're separated from God. And that God in his grace, God in his love, gave his only son to be a bridge, to bring us back to himself. And uh, to, to kind of, you know, bridge the separation that existed and, and so and so what Jesus says here those who believe in me will be saved so we're saved by grace but belief is the instrument of salvation and those who believe are saved from their sins that's what he's talking about he's he's challenging them those who believe the gospel will be saved now what does it what does it mean to believe the gospel believing the gospel just simply means believing that God did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. It's believing, believing the gospel is just simply believing that Jesus saved us when we couldn't save ourselves. 
Believing the gospel means believing that we've been reconciled to God and, and everything that's broken within us has been healed through the finished work of Jesus. That's, the, that's believing the gospel. And if it's not finished, Jesus would still be in the, in the grave. He would still be in the tomb. Now the problem is, some of you have said yes to a different gospel, but you've never said yes to Jesus. And maybe you've said yes to the false gospel of, well, I'm just going to be a good person and my goodness is going to save me. Or maybe you've said yes to the false gospel of church attendance. If I just go through the motions of religiosity, then then that's going to save me. And some of you have said yes to the false gospel of just being a hardworking Hoosier, you know, providing for your family and and just fulfilling that role. And then that's going to save you. The problem is you've never said yes to Jesus. You've said yes to a completely different gospel, but you've never said yes to Jesus. And the reality is only Jesus can save you. That's what he's saying. Whoever believes in me will find salvation. See, the gospel means, I mean, this is mind-blowing. The gospel means you owe nothing. The bill has been paid in full. So it's not a matter of me getting my life straightened out. It's not a matter of me, you know, trying harder and being better and doing more. No, my, God's acceptance of me is not based on what I do. It's based on what Christ has done for me. And so Jesus is saying, when you believe that, grace comes in and saves you. And so he's calling them. That's why he said there's salvation in, you know, under no one else. For there's no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. It's, it's just pretty incredible when you think about it. Then he says this. So he, he's talking about belief. And then he's talking about what accompanies belief. Let me show it to you again in verse 17. These verses are really interesting. Um, he says this, And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they'll speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, They will drink deadly poison. It will not hurt them. And then they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So so notice this. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Here's the key verse. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Now here's what I want to do today in the time that we have left. I want to talk to you about two marks of those who believe. So for for those who believe the gospel, there's something about your life that sets you apart. When we lean in to trusting in the grace of God, there's a qualitative difference about our life. There's something different in our life that validates the gospel message. And I want to share those two things with you. Number one, there is a gospel power to share Jesus. When you and I move in faith, there is a gospel power to share Jesus. You see this in verse 15. He calls them to proclaim the good news to all of creation. This is a form of the Great Commission, basically. He's giving them, you know, a life message to share. He's giving them a life mission. And notice in verse 20, they actually do it. Because it tells us they went out and preached everywhere. They actually did it. They went and shared. And so 
They go and share. They, they're proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Now, why would they do that? Because the grace of the gospel is so good, you can't help but share it. I mean, you have to share it. It just kind of overflows out of you. I mean, you don't have a choice. It just, you know, when, when you experience the love and the grace of God, it just flows out of you. It, it just, it transforms you. I mean, think about Think about the mercy that God has given us. He has not given us what we do deserve. And then think about his grace. He's given us what we don't deserve. And, and so when that starts to take hold and take root in your life, it, it just you can't help but to share it. It is a defining characteristic of a Jesus follower. Let me, let me show it to you in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is probably a familiar verse to, to most of us, but... but uh, Jesus says this, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now I want you to notice a couple things about this verse. We'll just leave it up there for a second. First of all, notice it's the power of the Holy Spirit that gives us the strength the, that equips us with the power to share. So this is not something we can do in our own fleshly strength. It's something we are to do in the power of the Holy Spirit. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to make Jesus look good. His job is to shine the light on Jesus. So what he does is he fills believers so that the believers will share the message and the spotlight and the glory goes to Jesus. And so the Spirit is what makes the difference. And what I notice is a lot of Christians, they don't share their faith in Jesus because they're not tapping in to the power of the Spirit. They're trying to live the Christian life kind of in the, you know, just by grit and just by determination and just by trying harder. When, when God sends the Holy Spirit to fill a believer to empower them for mission and to live the Christian life. This past summer, my, uh, I had the opportunity to go with my, my brothers to go sailing. My, my oldest brother owns a sailboat. And uh, so we went out for a couple of days on the Gulf of Mexico. Man, we went far out there. And the first night, uh, the first day, there was absolutely no wind. There was just no wind. It was just hot and humid and uh, hardly any breeze at all. So we had to use the engine to get us out in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. And so that was fine. We got out there, no problem at all. And then, and then when the winds finally started to kick in, my brother cut the engine and dropped all four sails. And I mean, that boat took off like crazy. Like we were, we were going effortlessly through the water. We were going so fast, the boat was leaning on one side. I'm sitting on the edge. I could touch the water. I didn't even have to lean over because the wind was so strong and so powerful. It just pushed the boat right through the water. And I think that's what Jesus is alluding to here, that, that the Spirit of God fills the people of God so that they're empowered for the mission of God. That's what the Spirit does. He gives you boldness. He gives you gentleness. He gives you the words, you know, um, and he just gives you the desire to, to really be a witness for him. And then that's the second thing that Jesus says is you'll receive power and that power is to be a witness. Now, do you know what a witness is? A witness is somebody in a court of law that just shares what they've seen and heard. 
And so Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses. He doesn't say, I want you to think about being my witness. He doesn't say, I want you to consider being a witness. He says, you will be my witness. You will testify to what you have seen and heard. That's his expectation for his followers, that we would speak of Jesus everywhere we go. That's the normal Christian life. And uh, that's Jesus' expectation. Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, Scott, I'm not very good at this. I, you know, I get kind of nervous. I don't want to get anything wrong. So I just want to be a silent witness. You know what I mean? I just want to kind of witness just with my life, just with my actions, but not really with my words. And, uh, you know, there's this great quote um, that often drives me crazy. Um, but it's a great quote. I see it on Facebook a lot. And it's attributed to St. Francis. It says this, uh, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Now, isn't that a great quote? The only problem with that quote is it's completely wrong. Other than that, it's fine. Um, you, a lot of uneasy laughter in here because you're like checking your Facebook feeds to see if you posted it or something. The problem with this is, is this, church. You Think of it this way. The gospel is a power, but it's also a set of ideas. The gospel is a power, but it's a set of facts. And there's no way a person can get saved outside of those ideas or those facts. It's impossible. And so you have to share the gospel. People need to know that, that our sin separates us from God and that God sent his son. You have to articulate that. And so preach the gospel at all times and use words at all times. That's, that's how, I would, how I would rewrite it. Paul says it like this in Romans 10, 17. So faith comes, saving faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It didn't say anything about seeing. It says faith comes, saving faith comes through hearing the word of Christ. What is the word of Christ? That he lived for us, he died for us, and he rose for us. Nothing else can save you outside of that. And so there have been times in my life, you know, when um, I've struggled to get up and walk across the room and have a gospel conversation. There have been times in my life where I've struggled walking across the gym to, to, to go have a gospel conversation. There, there have been, you know, times when, you know, I, I struggle just walking across the street to talk to my neighbor to have a gospel conversation. I'm thinking about Thanksgiving already. You know, my family's already planning Thanksgiving. I'm thinking about all the people that need to be there. And I'm already praying for those conversations. Because, you know, sometimes I struggle having those conversations. I don't know about you, but I know I, I've struggled with that. And, and one, of the, one of the things that I kind of think about just brings clarity for me about this, and, and it's really this. Is Jesus just one part of my life? Or is he my entire life? Like, is he just a compartment in my life? Like, I, I've got my hobbies, and i got my work, and i got my family, and i got my marriage. You know, oh, and i got Jesus. Or is he my entire life? That's really the question. Do I really love him more than everything else? Is he really my first love? Because if he is, then I'm going to share him. I can't help but talk about him. Isn't it funny? The stuff we love we love talking about it. You ask me about college football, I won't shut up for an hour if you ask me about it. So be careful. 
I, I love CrossFit. I really do. I love doing it. I don't know why. It's insane, but I love doing it. Ask me about it, and I won't stop talking about it. I even love politics. Our pol- I, I'm very interested in politics. I'm the only person in America that likes really talking about it. Um, so you could ask me about it. Our politics are so crazy. Um, but I love talking about it. It's just interesting to me. And it's so natural. It's so easy. And here's the thing. When we love Jesus, we just want to talk about him. We just want to testify to what we've seen, what we've heard, and the change that he has made in our life. And, uh, and I think that's really the heart issue. Do we really love him? And that's where the gospel power to share Jesus really comes in. You know, Pastor Lee Harper is going to be teaching a class called Missional Living. He's going to start on October 15th. You need to sign up for that class. Because what he's going to do is he's going to equip you to live on mission fearlessly, confidently, joyfully, gently, lovingly. He's going to do that. You're going to walk away like, you know, I got this. With God's help, with the power of the Holy Spirit, I can do this. And uh, you need to take that class and sign up today. Everybody get it? All right, number two. This is where it's going to get interesting. So buckle up, buttercup. Here we go. So, so there's, there's this gospel power through the Holy Spirit, through the resurrection of Jesus, to share Jesus. But then there's this gospel power to actually live for him. Where we're empowered to live the Christian life. Where we don't have to drudge through it, you know, gritting our teeth day in and day out. There's a power that we have. Now, let me, let me set it up this way so it's going to take me a while to get there, but just, just hang with me. You know, when Jesus sent the disciples out, he sent them out with signs. And he said to them, look, you guys are going to, you're going to speak in tongues. You're going to heal the sick. You're going to pick up snakes and drink poison. It's not going to harm you. And, uh, and, and you're, you're going you're gonna to cast out demons. You're going you're gonna to do all of these things. And these things are not just, they're not spiritual gifts that he's giving out individually, like, you know, a car dealer in Vegas, something, he's just dealing them out. No, he, what he's talking about here. This group of things that he's describing are signs and wonders and miracles that will accompany the apostles' preaching of the gospel that will validate that what they're preaching is true. So it's kind of a group of them. God is going to work powerfully to confirm to the people you're speaking to that what you're saying is absolutely true. In other words, you could call them gospel-validating feats and the purpose of these gospel validating feats are not to draw attention to the ones who perform them but the purpose of these gospel validating feats are to draw attention to Jesus and the power of the gospel to to change your life and so what they're going to do is they're going to they're going to focus our attention on the reality and the validity of the gospel of Jesus so that so that we can believe so that we can take that step to believe. So think about it this way. When the disciples went into villages and they would proclaim the gospel, they would, they would cast out demons. And, and the casting out of demons validated their message because the message was clear. The gospel has power over the demonic. Satan is a defeated foe. That's the message there. And then when the disciples mobilized throughout the Mediterranean world, the different, you know, uh, different languages, different cultures, they spoke in tongues. Not a private prayer language, mind you, 
but they had the ability to speak foreign languages that they had not studied. They had the ability to speak, to share the gospel in foreign languages that they had never learned before, which validated their message and it communicated the reality that the gospel is for all people. Not just the people of Israel, but the gospel is for everyone. And so when the disciples were able to, you know, pick up snakes, you see this in Acts 28, you know, the apostle Paul gets bitten by snakes, hanging from his arm, they expect him to die, he doesn't die. But when the, when the apostles pick up snakes or drink poison, it confirmed the gospel's power over death. That death is a defeated foe. And then when they went into the, a place and they were able to heal the sick, it validated the reality that the gospel is restorative. That it's going gonna, it's gonna to displace the curse over creation and, and one day all things are going to be made new and there's going to be no more death, no more disease, no more sorrow. That was, that was what it validated. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. And so, and so Jesus is confirming that there are going to be signs and wonders and miracles that will accompany the preaching of the gospel. It was no different in the ministry of Jesus. So why do you think he would, went around and did miracles? What's your thought on that? Did he do these magic tricks just to assemble a crowd? No. He performed miracles and healings to show the people the kingdom of God has arrived. The message is true. And, uh, and so Jesus' miracles were to validate his identity and his ministry so that the people would believe in him. And you know what, church? God's doing the same thing today. The exact same thing today. You know, in Acts chapter 3, there's the story of uh, Peter and John. They're going up to the Temple Mount to pray. And, uh, and there's, a, there's a man who's crippled who's laying right at the base of the Temple Mount. And he's, he's begging for money like he did, you know, day in and day out. And so Peter and John go up to him. They start a conversation. And Peter lifts, you know, takes his arm, lifts him up and heals him. The power of God flows through him and heals him. Well, in Acts chapter 4... Peter and John are arrested and thrown into prison because they're preaching the gospel. And the religious leaders tell Peter and John, look, you guys need to shut up. You need to stop preaching. And Peter and John say, look, we can't help but to testify to what we've seen and heard. We're not going to shut up. We're going to keep going. And uh, so then they, you know, the religious leaders have a closed door meeting and they're trying to figure out how to how to shut these guys up and they're just complaining about all the people in Jerusalem are believing the message and, and then they're like oh yeah and they actually did heal the guy we can't deny that like everybody in Jerusalem knows they healed the guy and so we confirm the power of God flowed through them and did this amazing miracle we have seen it with our own eyes and so what the power of God does through signs and wonders and miracles is it validates the preaching of the gospel in your life. Look at verse 20 again. Let me show it to you again. It says this, and they went out and they preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message. You see that? By accompanying signs. Isn't that amazing? Now church, I have great news today. You ready? We are not going to be handling snakes today. Some of you are like, Okay, where is he going with this? So we're not going to be drinking poison today. We're not even doing communion. I didn't want anybody to be confused about it at all. So um, didn't want to do it. 
But I do think we have an opportunity that as Christians that we live so in love with Jesus, that we live set apart for him, that we live consecrated to him, that when people see our lives, they see the kingdom of God in us. They know the message is real by what they observe and see in our life. They see our love when it's hard to love. They see our joy when circumstances aren't going great. They, they see our victory when life is really hard and difficult. And they look at us and they wonder, what is it about your life? You have something that I want. What is it? Will you tell me about it? And it's like your life becomes a miracle that validates the preaching of the gospel, that validates what you say about Jesus and how he has saved you. I think that opportunity is very much in front of us today. The only question is, are you willing to let go? Are you willing to surrender? Are you willing to believe and let the Holy Spirit fill you and use you in this way? You know, the San Francisco 49ers, they have a great quarterback. His name is Brock Purdy. And uh, last year, he was, he was next to the last guy taken in the NFL draft. So the last guy taken in the NFL draft is called Mr. Irrelevant. He is called almost Mr. Irrelevant. Uh, that's a, kind of a dubious title there. But, um, but uh, Brock Purdy is a very very strong Christian. He was a, he's the third string quarterback when he was drafted on the 49ers. Third string quarterback behind Trey Lance and Jimmy Garoppolo. And if you know the story, you know, Trey Lance got hurt, Garoppolo got hurt, and then he came in. They won seven straight games. He took them to the playoffs. And then he got really badly injured, almost a career-ending injury, basically, um, in the playoffs last year. But I want you to hear what he says. And I want you to hear the supernatural power of God through him. Listen to what he says. He says, quote, every time I play, no matter what happens, I want others to see Jesus through my actions. Every time I step on the field, I just want to bring him glory. When we win, when we lose, when I'm healthy, when I'm injured, I just want to point to God and thank him for the opportunity. Everything happens for a reason. It's all a lesson from the Lord. It's a game. It's not my life. Now think about that, church. If he was living naturally, it was, if he's just following the natural desires of the world, it would be all about him. His injury would be absolutely devastating. You know, his life would be characterized by selfishness and the search for glory and fame and pleasure and money and all of that stuff. It, that's the natural life, but he's chosen to say, you know what, I want to live the supernatural life. I want to live a life trusting in the power of God so that when other people see me, they don't see me, they see the kingdom of God flowing through me. That's exactly what I'm talking about. That's the greater miracle there, that he could do that is greater than any healing, any demon being cast out, that he can do it in ordinary life. The ups and downs of ordinary life that he can do it is absolutely incredible. And I just wonder, actually I don't wonder, I know. That's what God's calling us to do and to be. 
to take God at his word, to believe the promises of God, to live surrendered to him every day so that when other people see me and when other people see you, they really see Jesus. And it only comes when you say, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your power today. When you wake up in the morning and your heart's desire is to say, God, I give you all my stresses. I give you my finances. I give you my marital struggles. I give you school. I give you stress. I give you anxiety. Lord, I give it all to you. Just fill me with your spirit. And you know what? The spirit of God will start blowing into your life and empowering you to be who you are called to be. And that is somebody that testifies to the goodness and the grace of the gospel. You know, Jesus did this for you. Do you know that he loved you so much that he left the throne of heaven? Philippians 2 tells us that he emptied himself of his divine prerogatives. He just laid them down. His position, his glory, and his power. He laid them down and he came to the earth. He embraced the natural life so he could show us how to live the supernatural life. He embraced death so that we could experience the presence of God living inside of us. That's how much he loves you. He just wants to fill you and use you, change you, and fill you with joy. The question is, is that what you want? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I uh, just give you glory for the power of the kingdom of God. It certainly doesn't draw attention to us. It, it just draws our focus to you because it's all about you. And God, we are, we are servants. We're just ambassadors. We're just representatives. We're just testifiers, witnesses what we've seen and heard and so God I just pray you would you would move amongst us God that you would give us faith to surrender what we're holding on to what we're trying to control so that your power can be made perfect in us so that your power can flow through us so God just renew us in you strengthen us in you so Lord we just come before you as your children as as Adam mentioned a little bit earlier, we come as your sons and daughters and we, we entrust our life into your care. And so I just want to give you a moment as we, as we just remain in a, in a posture of prayer. I want to give you a moment just to respond, just in your seat. And maybe there's a sin that you need to confess. Maybe there's a struggle you need to surrender. Maybe, maybe you haven't even talked to God all week. But he's still with you. He still loves you. I want to just give you a space to do that. However you need to respond. Whatever he's prompting you to do. I want you to connect with him. Use this time to just, just pray.
God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your power. Just fill us afresh and anew with your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen.